Ectoplasm episode 98, which will be Marvel 1602, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome a guest to the Fictoplasm podcast, Mr. Paul Bodarski. Sorry, have I p- pronounced your name correctly? You, Paul? you have, you have, and it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be invited uh, on board. <laughs> uh, so, Paul. I reached out to you specifically because of the desanction. I mean, you, you've got a, a significant amount of writing credits to your name, which I think a lot of this will be relevant to the conversation. But originally, I was just expecting to talk to you about the desanction, which I adore, by the way. My, uh, especially my hardback copy with the with the lovely golden gold embossed um, uh, is it a septogram? I think on the front with it. it's. Um, the Absolutely C- gorgeous. The Segellum Day, or however it's pronounced, yes, the the symbol mm, yeah. that D used to commune with angels, or part of the, the overarching ritual. Yes, but I, it's it's a really striking and simple book. I I really like the way that you know that. I'm glad I I got in on the Kickstarter for that. So, really fantastic. Um, but you've got a lot of other. Um, writing credits to your name but also i mentioned that oh i'd like to do this as part of the 1602 episode at which point you said oh i love that um so i thought maybe we could have a conversation about that as well mm-hmm. because i i mean i've i've actually we've had it on the shelves for ages my partner read it and i think i gave it to her as a gift originally and then i, I only just picked it up recently and um i thought this this has a lot of very interesting things to talk about particularly in view of the Vogue of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, some of the other superhero stuff that I've been reading, but then primary world fantasy and primary world adventure fiction of the kind that might get turned into role-playing games. And, of course, it fits in with historical fantasy, historical magical games as well. So good fit with the Deep Sanction, I think. So the way that this normally works then is I talk about synopsis and then um uh then we talk about sort of remarks about the work and how we translate it to a role-playing game and then after that there's maybe some discussion about other media in this case though i wanted to focus on the desanction and the actual practice of writing a historical semi-fantasy role-playing game and how you would bring that to the table because I think it requires some very specific approaches compared to say a secondary world like like all the the ones that we know so that's really the way I'd like to go with it I'm going to start mm-hmm. with then the the synopsis the premise of 1602 it's a marvel graphic novel that I think was was first brought in around uh, 2003 and there were a couple of sequels as well and it it basically puts a lot of the established Marvel superheroes in uh, an Elizabethan timeline right at the end of her reign and um, at the point of the, more or less the point of the accession of James I. And um, it, uh, apart from, say, reskinning some of the names, like mutants become witch breed, it's basically put those characters that we know into... Uh, roles about three to four hundred years in the past. Yeah, I think it, it um, uh, to connect into a, another property and line. It, it's the the what if type approach, or, or certainly hits you as you start reading it. The what if the Marvel universe happened whatever three hundred and fifty years, three four hundred years earlier um, than it panned out um, is definitely the way as you start reading it uh, that it feels. And I think that that is part of the the whole point about it, getting the the narrative beats of it. They're very much 
to um, that they're Easter eggs for the Marvel superheroes um, fans who are familiar with the characters already. And um, I, I think there's a lot that I really enjoyed about the way that some of the characters had been portrayed and and some of the situations they get into. In particular, I like the idea that Peter Parker, at no more than three times he encounters a spider, and in two times he said, oh, that's interesting. And uh, Nick, Sir Nicholas Fury uh, says, don't touch that. Uh, and brushes that away so so he doesn't get bitten and but that 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 i think is partly um neil gaiman's genius because he wrote this i think he 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 is the sole author of this uh, i can't remember who the artist is i've got them. uh andrew cubert is the uh, artist and presumably richard isanov is the inker yes uh absolutely right the covers are absolutely gorgeous as well yeah i mean it's, it, it has that aspect of it, it reminds me of um the imagery weirdly enough that you get on money the uh, and uh, uh, that's a style isn't it the 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 shades the shading is all in lines um that yes. sort of typical image that you get on the back of a you know five ten pound note or whatever of somebody where the where the shadow is done with lines but yeah it, it is I'm sure, I'm sure there's a proper way to refer to it and probably a you know historic sort of you know the artists who actually have that style to them but it is they are they are stunning covers yes Normally, after talking about the premise, we talk about the characters, um, and the characters are the characters we know, uh, and and I think maybe it's more important to talk about the factions that they appear in, because that's really the way that the plot is structured. It's around several different groups of people um, with their own interests uh, fitting into the rest of the the rest of the plot. Um, so I've got Elizabeth's advisors. Some um, Doctor Strange, uh, Sir Nicholas Fury, and Peter Parker, who's his um, apprentice ward. I'm, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. And Matthew Murdock, who's uh, you know Daredevil. Yeah. Although I mean, the, of, uh, Parker and and Murdock are clearly um, part of Fury's network, and actually, in in coming, in reading it. Uh, and given my interests in 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 the characters of the Elizabethan period, the date and the characters seem to be slightly at odds because I would have made and thought of as Doctor Strange as being Doctor D and and Fury being Walsingham and his network, yes. which which is which means that the dateline of the comic, which is sixteen oh two, is or out of whack with the characters where, where Walsingham and Dee's influence with the Queen are at their height during the uh, the 1580s. Um, yes. Um, you know, and, and, and ultimately, so um, it was slightly, it wasn't disconcerting to read it that way, but I felt that I, I, I connected with the characters they were representing in a slightly skewed way of Gaiman's taken people historic people and implanted them in a different time frame and then made them uh you know superhero versions as such although nick fury as always is is ultimately you know the 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 you know, the typical un unpowered hero whose whose uh, whose abilities come from his his experience and expertise um i i mean that point that you made about the uh, time difference um for a start this is 1602, and uh, spoilers ahead. Elizabeth dies because that's part of the interesting. Uh, that's part of the the interesting plot is the tension between the Elizabethan faction and those serving James. 
Uh, and of course, that happens one year uh, one year earlier anyway than our actual history. Elizabeth died in 1603. I guess I don't know how much Neil Gaiman intentionally did that. Obviously, he intentionally shifted the time, or someone intentionally shifted the time. But you are absolutely right. Uh, Fury is Walsingham, Strange is D. I, I think they are so, a couple of the most interesting characters in the in the story as well. Um, particularly Nicholas Fury, his motivations and the and the way he goes about his operations. Is- yeah, and, and the thing is that they that while their purposes are aligned in terms of their uh, interests in the Queen and and keeping her safe and understanding that the, the um, conflicts and threats that face them, they approach it in completely different ways. Fury doesn't trust Strange, um, and Strange yeah. has his own purposes and agenda in his own way um so so they have a common common purpose um but they do it in very different ways and and and, you know and that again perhaps connects down to a a sort of historical view that there was a lot of that notion of patrons of court had their own purposes uh, and rarely did they all truly align um on a on a an individual level while their overarching interest might have been to uh, to support the queen and garner her favor so then we talk about some of the other characters and the main antagonist i think it's right to say the main antagonist human antagonist is is james uh, it's james the sixth of scotland is is it james the sixth i can't remember yes um so he yeah. certainly he becomes james the first uh, of, of 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 england uh, and David Banner is one of his advisors. Which is... the, the most superfluous <laughs> yes. throw, throw away. <laughs> they're, they're, you're not even, I mean, you almost, uh, you mentioned Peter Parker and obviously you have those multiple instances. And I, I did generally that first time the spider appeared, I'm thinking, you know, like it was, a, you know, on a TV or in a movie screen, I was poised there. But Banner is so utterly throw away. He barely says anything. You, yes. You see the Hulk at the end. Oh, okay, I'm going to ruin it for everyone. You do see him, but there's no reason for him to be the Hulk at that point. You don't even establish the reason, you know, other. <laughs> it's kind of like, why? I mean, he has just appeared, uh, and by accident, he has been showered with a massive amount of radiation at the end. Yes. And and I think that that is the point. I mean, As was the, the spider. <laughs> As was the last spider, the third yeah. appearance of the spider, and that's the one that bit Peter Parker. Yeah. So there, there we go. Um, it's it, I understand that it comes to more prominence in the sequels, and I kind of like the idea that the conclusion to this one, that this arc of eight, finishes with the emergence of the Hulk and just tearing through the. Um, I think it's Virginia. They is the colonies, and I can't remember. Yes. Um, yeah, but they're just tearing through the, uh, the the woods, and you've no idea what's going to happen. But obviously, it, that is an emergent threat that mm-hmm. will come later. And they do have sequels. Um, who else? We've got the other the the third lot, of course, is Carlos Javier or Javier. I'm not sure if it's Javier or Javier, depending on the Spanish or Portuguese. I think. Yes. But as and his school of of um, his school for I can't remember the official title. It's it's something a school for young gentlemen of of extraordinary talents or something. But uh, he's training witch breed. Yes, obviously. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, although, not 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 to divert. In in your mention of James, I don't consider him a threat at all. He's almost the comic aside. Almost. I mean, not quite comic aside. 
he, yes. he, he poses zero threat almost to anybody and is almost a, a, um, an element of historical backdrop in many ways. The, the, I think the real villains are abroad. Well, let's talk about one of those villains, which is uh, Otto von Doom, mm. uh, the appearance of Doctor Doom, and um, he's he's got he's captured the four from the Fantastic and stuck them in his dungeon, which is just brilliant. Yeah, and I then, mean, I especially like the the the. Um, I felt I felt a very Witcher moment of the bardic tales of of the the Fantastic and its its uh, its fate and how the four yeah. had uh, had succumbed to these uh, their their elemental changes and on whatever and um, that was a rather nice touch that we we get this this backstory in passing before you actually. Ultimately, I don't, you, you don't even see any members of the Fantastic Four until at least halfway through, I seem to recall. Yeah, but what I do like is the thing of Benjamin Grimm having been an old sea captain. And so he's got, you can imagine a particular turn of phrase that he has. Yes. Which, um, which I think <laughs> I think he always had that. I mean, sort of that, that is the sort of character I imagine him being, except is a bit, bit saltier, which is even better. <laughs> Maybe. Um, who else? Oh yes, the Inquisition. Mm. So that's that's Magneto, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. And then the Roanoke Colony um, is uh, it's Virginia and uh, Rogers. Uh, Rogers is basically Captain America, um, who, and he is the bodyguard of Virginia. But Virginia is the one um, is the one hero I actually had to look up. And it's Snowbird from Alpha Flight. Did you know that? I don't know if you're a fan of Alpha Flight. I'm aware. See, the weird, weirdest thing is, I'm only aware of Alpha Flight from the Marvel superheroes role-playing game, which means I haven't so much as looked at it in 30, 35 years. I mean, because the Marvel superheroes role-playing game had a whole bunch of Alpha Flight um, as the standard heroes that you got in the box set. <laughs> um, so she yeah. may well have been. I may have to check to see whether she was amongst them. But no, I mean, I sat. I I kind of just glossed over it in my head to work out who she was um in- i did read yeah i did read some alpha flight when i was um when i was very young uh, it was really hard to get hold of my marvel comics but i think there were some that were printed in the uk and they included mm. uh, that you know the, the typical weekly format was that they would serialize them in shorter contents and they'd have lots of the same strips in one uh in one British publication, and I think, and a bit, and and I, I think that Power Pack and Alpha Flight were in the same comic that I was reading at the time. Okay, I do remember Puck from Alpha Flight, who's also has no powers, and he's basically a circus tumbler, but he was also the one of the most interesting characters. And he definitely was a pre-gen. I remember <laughs> from yeah. Marvel superheroes. Um, yeah, no, it, uh, I, 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 I hadn't. Um, I couldn't work out who she was, but I wasn't. I was more interested in the st- just following the story, and so yeah, it uh, as as was intended by Gaiman, I'm sure that you know the the revelation of her bodyguard ultimately being um, Steve Rogers slash you know Captain America is you know hidden hidden away. Um, but equally, I was almost as happy not to know who she was during the the course of reading it. Um, although her you know her powers were. Yeah, in the interesting sort of stress-induced acts of psychotic violence in animal form, or uh, um, yeah, useful in telling the story. Obviously, in terms of you know, she didn't really need to be saved, but and yet she had a, this uh, this hulking 
um, bodyguard who hardly said a word. Um, um, yeah, it was uh, an interesting addition. And uh, and and well, that w- that was one of the things I think about Virginia is that you're quite right. She didn't need to be saved. But what Rogers would be doing is that she would she would transform into some beast and then go off and sleep it off, and he'd mm. be the one having to scale a mountain and then yes. bring her back down. Yeah, and 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 look after. So that was his job. He was basically a cleaner. And uh, which was, you know, quite nice, actually. So I liked him. Yeah, Rojas, originally you assumed that, oh, he's just the uh, this Earth's version of Captain America. It turns out that actually he is Captain America, which yeah. is, is part of the overall plot. Um, we have a couple of other people who turn up. There's Thor and there, there's a Watcher who who basically interacts with Stephen Strange and tells him about the... the the coming apocalypse but i think we've covered most of the characters there um toad toad yes to- <laughs> <laughs> who who, who to- seems to be sort of uh inserted into the vatican or or, or to some measure um or, or at least it be part of uh the inquisitor's spy network rather unsuccessfully it seems but um and then gets dragged more fully into the story it does strike me that Toad fits better in this setting than he does in a modern day setting in some ways. And you imagine the sort of squat character with, with uh, lumpy skin and a prehensile tongue. Yes. Um, you might be able to get away with claiming that you had a really bad case of the pox in your youth and that this has left you, you uh, sort of somewhat uh, um, yeah, scarred by, uh, by your recovery. But yes. Well, if. If everyone's dressing in a Hessian sack, I think you also have something to your advantage as well. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, um, I don't think there's a lot that we need to talk about about the overall plot. Right at the start, I mean, there's, there's these there's these signs of an, an, uh, a fairly unspecified apocalypse, but something that Stephen Strange anticipates is coming and is a threat not just to uh, Elizabeth, but to the entirety of existence. Um, and at the same time, there's this treasure of the Templars, which Fury has been uh, tasked with obtaining. And right at the start as well, Virginia arrives with Rogers to um, to, on, to petition uh, for aid for her colony, the Roanoke colony in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm, I'm sort of just listing the, the items of rising action. Um, essentially, Elizabeth is assassinated by a gift from doom uh james becomes the king of england and scotland and the main the main knock-on effect there is the the ongoing persecution of the witch breed and his his objection to the existence of mutants um fury assembles his team of goodies everyone assaults doom's castle in latveria and uh, rescues the four from the fantastic and then Strange discovers the underlying plot. I've, I think that's that's about it. I'm yes. sorry, that, that's that's what happens. It's it. When I, I was reading it, so this is something I want to cover in a, in a bit when we talk about how we turn historical uh, fiction into games. But I got a, it. Um, even though it was, um, it had some very nice touches which felt authentic for the period. It felt much more MCU than I was expecting it to. It was very much, we, you know, never mind the the current political climate. 
or the, um, the the historical context, we are a bunch of supers and we're going to storm a castle somewhere. And, and that's kind of straight out of the Avengers, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and if uh, it's... So, because you ref, I'm, and I'm trying to trying to find the uh, flicking through my copy here, because you mentioned so, the the assassination of the queen feels like the end of the first act. I'm trying to get in my head. I've got that's the end of the first act. The second act is the the the, the siege and and the rescue of the fantastic crew, and then the third act is kind of the new world. Now it feels like the first act actually runs for half the half the book. I'm trying to work out when the, the queen gets assassinated but um but you're right that is so the 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 first act is very much it's like it's a world of uh, exposition character introductions it's quite um it has it's setting all the uh, the threads in in their place and the the wheels in motion make uh, not necessarily giving you all the information the all the information doesn't seem to really you know it kicks in in act two probably midway through act two maybe when you begin to see that the threads are you know taking you into um you know revealing the nature of characters i mean uh, you get a little bit of that earlier when murdoch is um tricked and ultimately seemingly um killed by black widow um yep. um but i think it's in act two when you get you get your real introduction to to reed and the the fantastic crew um and yeah it probably does have i'm trying to get it in my head is it, it the actually the captain america civil war type movie where they they go into the castle or something or am i making that up in my head well, there is the one where they attack the hydra base which is kind of in a castle they, you you kind of get the idea that that's the sort of thing that we're dealing here with um and um uh, against Captain Zemo in that case, but you know, in the in this case, uh, you've got it against Doom. You have, and and uh, it is more full-on action. Whereas the beginning, in many ways, has been, as I said, it's more information, it's it's story, it's building up people. Then, and maybe that's the 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 key to it actually. That it it it, build, it builds up to this action in the middle that then uh, you know tails off when the heroes have to work out. What, what next where do we go and realize they can't go home and then and then you get the third act of going to a, go, going to America um, but yeah it is very as you say there are elements of MCU I don't think you could necessarily pull off the uh, the first act in the MCU without editing it no. mass massively <laughs> to, um, because it is very uh, exposition heavy which is not really an MCU sort of uh, thing yes quite right. Um, I just looked it up. It's at the end of the third episode. It's the end right. of the third episode that that um, Elizabeth is killed, um, and so it's a eight issue series. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things actually I loved about the first that that first act you pointed to is the way that it it does manage to go back and forth between locations very effectively and give you a spotlight and a sense of each of the different camps. So you've got Murdoch uh, and his lonely journey uh through the uh you know out out in europe and then you've got the things happening in um in britain um in england and uh and the uh i assume it's that i assume that the inquisition they are actually out of the vatican i think uh so you, you've got those locations i've got a very strong sense of the different uh groups right from the outset which was uh which i thought was very well done 
and they look sufficiently different from the heroes that we'd expect that there's a bit of a um, having fun spotting the hero uh, you know some of them are obviously very obvious and some of them are, are um it took me a while to work out that the inquisition the guy was actually magneto so yes it's, yeah uh, yeah that that's i think that's the key one that that's the one that you you get to it and you go ah oh, that's that that's that's the reason why you know he's allowed uh, you know effectively scarlet witch and quicksilver to live because well they, he's got reason to l- let that happen um yes um but yeah that that did take a while i have to say I think your your point about dividing it into those three acts is is uh, very useful because right at the start the first three issues is exposition then we start to get a sort of it's a um uh, the the much more as we say MCU type of adventure where you have everybody saying right we know where the thing is and the thing the MacGuffin being the treasure of the Templars which is apparently not actually what people think it is. I think they think it's the the golden sphere in the cart. It turns out to be something else, which is related to the emergence of other gods. Um, Although that in and of itself is a double bluff type of thing as well, though, isn't it? Quite, that, yes. That, that, yes, that it is. You are actually after the the, the stick. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, the, the golden orb is not without relevance when well, you the understand... Golden orb, it's its yeah. own set of problems. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but the end of the second act, we actually have the the revelations of this is what the apocalypse is all about. So that that's the arc that it's taking is the the end of the first act sets up the the coming troubles with the death of, death of Elizabeth, the need to act against doom uh, and free other people, and the uh, the changing political landscape with James acceding to the throne. And then is that the right word? A seeding? Is this a session? I'm not yes. sure. Yeah. yeah. Right <laughs> and and then, but but the end of the second act, um, it doesn't just, as you rightly say, set up the everyone is running towards America with and being the bad guys are pursuing the good guys. Three ships are going to America, and we're not sure what's going to happen. Um, it also sets up the the, the cosmology stuff the um this is the this is the wider context of the reality that uh, that these people are living in and the fact that something has caused these you know superheroes to emerge about 350 years earlier than they should be in any other version of the multiverse's timeline yes but the thing is of course also because it's strange that's made this discovery and Mr. Fury has already nipped off. There's no way for the one group of heroes to understand the the, the greater threat um, that faces them, because it isn't just you know a matter of James coming to power and you know his his uh, uh, attitude towards the witch witch breed, but yeah, the overarching collapse of the uh, the multiverse um, in the process of you know if you don't do anything, you know it's uh, this is literally you know the an explosive situation which if if allowed to run its course is going to end everything uh, and no way for strange to be able to tell uh, anyone about it because the watchers told him not to <laughs> um yes uh, <laughs> not, well, not 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 while he's alive yes <laughs> yes but, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he gets around that by dying as as you do as you do yes um that that, that's uh that's the mountain witch right there (laughs) 
Um, but I mean, that's again potentially. I'm I'm sure nobody at at, uh, at Disney or or Marvel is thinking this way. But this is a this is ripe for turning into something, even if it is just an animated what if episode rather mm. than anything. Because this this I know it happens a lot in comics, both DC and Marvel, that they have a multiversal situation, whether it's a crisis in DC or it's you know whatever the equivalent is in marvel but yeah the, the universe and uh, the multiverse have come come under a threat <laughs> again and again and i think this is um this is an example of actually game and just tapping into something which comic readers will have you know <laughs> almost expect to happen every five to ten years when um you know you need to uh, get as many comics sold as possible you uh, you threaten the multiverse and get as many yeah. people involved <laughs> Yeah, I, I must say, I, I was almost a little bit disappointed when it turned out to be, this is going to be, um, this is going to be tied into the wider multiverse as opposed to its own thing, a what if of let's just tell the the story of what happens if superheroes emerge emerge three hundred and fifty years earlier than than they have been told in all other versions of the story. I felt that that was quite good, but. I also like the idea that the it, it was very neat that the way that the um, the emergence of Rogers, which was you know it, time travel is involved, that mm. caused the problem anyway, which and and that's the thing that had to be resolved as he had to be returned to his own his own time. Um, I think that's right, and he gets uh, returned to his own time at the end um, under duress from Nick Fury, who who beats him up. Uh, and then carries and then carries him through the the portal. Yes, yeah, so 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 Nick Fury no longer exists in that version of the universe. But um... because that version of the universe, yeah. So I mean, that, but that's the nice touch. That version of the universe collapses, but the big daddy watchers give the the local watcher that universe as a gift. Um, you know, so that's why sixteen oh two presumably you know continues because it should cease. But it's been gifted because it feels like it feels like Star Trek's Q or something. Being you know you you've done something good for once. We're going to uh, you know allow you to have this 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 once, but never never do it again. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I thought it was a it was a satisfying resolution, and I I suppose that um, Neil Gaiman. Uh, I mean, he does. I think he does resolve his graphic novel works quite well anyway um certainly for some of the things like um the, you know the doll's house and uh, and and uh, some of the other sandman stuff i i think that um he's actually quite good at bringing a story to a conclusion and this one was very satisfying as well to me so uh overall uh, it's a it's a nice arc and it wrapped up quite well yeah, I mean, and 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 it was interesting reading some of the the afterward um, uh, to look at the in, the the actual environment in which gaming had come up with it post um, 9/11. Um, the fact that you know he chose not to include effectively the attack, you know, on the Guy Fawkes, you know, the the plot against James and stuff because it was not, you know, it wouldn't have been appropriate at that particular point in time. Um, and therefore he looked, you know, elsewhere. Um, and in, in a way, you kind of wonder, you know, it's it's more what ifs, actually. You know, what what would 16 or 2 been like if, if that hadn't happened? Um, you know, and in, in, in 
as we've said, you know, there are within the storyline characters out of joint to the effect that, you know, his the story that he tells is supported by characters that aren't necessarily in the right place at the right time in a historical sense. Um, and it, yeah, it is interesting how, yeah, start to finish, you still do, as as we said earlier on, you know, with Parker and Banner, have loose ends, you know, which which are incredibly loose because you, you see them for a frame and that's, you know, you know what's going on, but that's, you know, you, you well, no, you don't specifically know what's going on. You've seen it happen, but you are, you, there are stories yet to be told. And yeah, as, as we've said, 1602, the universe continues and things will continue to expand uh, beyond that point yeah uh, i but i think it does the thing that you see this sort of thing happening at the end and like a lot of um, a lot of the mcu stuff you trust that there is going to be another story to be told that is then going to resolve itself and that will be a separate arc and and at the moment i i thought that uh, those finishing touches that said yes there will be a continuation to this if you want to pursue it but otherwise it was um uh, it was tantalizing but it was it was uh, i i didn't felt shortchanged by not not seeing enough of the hulk uh, i thought that that single frame was was mm. uh, just it yeah. summarized it perfectly although if i had the money i would pay disney to do a daredevil in the you know that period. You know, uh, you know. I, I I did like the Murdoch character, um, yes. and I think I think a a Tudor Daredevil. I, I'm up for that series. <laughs> I think I saw someone. Um, I'm actually sort of as an aside. I think I saw someone doing some art of all of the superhero costumes that have been reimagined in in Tudor dress with massive ruffs mm-hmm. and uh, and and doublets and hose so Batman with a massive ruff and a doublet and hose just looking it looks spectacular so uh, but yeah uh, the Murdoch character was I think it has a the, the most possibility for sort of low level um, street level type of stories that aren't aren't of the sort of universe shattering kind, mm. and uh, and you're quite right. It's an interesting character and um, has has a lot of possibility going forward. But also, it kind of broke the mold for me about what I assumed Daredevil would be, which is normally normally someone quite affluent and and well to do, and then. Uh, well, I, I think it depends if you're talking about the Ben Affleck version or the uh, I can't remember the. the I much yeah, I much prefer the not Ben Affleck version. I, the, I think the, ev- the more, everyone does. <laughs> the the more recent Netflix version is is you know a a lawyer you know j- the, going old school. He, it's the lawyer who takes on the um, the cases that are you know where where you are supporting somebody who doesn't have the money to be able to defend themselves, and therefore you have you know someone on the lower end of the spectrum who nevertheless works against people who have the money and i think that that's the murdoch that we're dealing here with um although at the same time the fact that he's he's a bard too um is um (laughs) 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 Mm. yes less less said about the songs the best no no i said the song songs were very good um but i'm not a big supporter of bards not not to go there but anyway i don't want to get people with hate metal people talking about bards now because because it's the, of course, the Frankenstein's RPG podcast that is should be the the place where oh, we'll hate mail is directed. We'll to. start talking about traveling now as well. Then, okay, no, that's, 
But you did mention, I, I think this might be a good point to move over to the commentary and, and talk to, to get your thoughts on, you know, t- making a great historical game and, and how you would do it. Um, and, uh, you know, because you talked about characters with possibilities that go beyond just the sort of framework of the of the Marvel universe. Um, so you you could imagine someone like Murdoch going anywhere and being involved in in other stories of a, a different kind. Um, the reason I reached out to you, Paul, originally is I mean, you you wrote the desanction, uh, mm-hmm. and of course that ties in as well. But it's it's not just that; it's it's also the you know how does one go ahead um, making a historical game, particularly for an audience who almost certainly won't know as much about the won't immerse themselves in the history as you do and yet you've got to make something which is convincing at the table has the you know the the verisimilitude and you want to you you want to, them to sort of be able to be up and running with it so that's the kind of aim of this conversation I'd to go for now um maybe I could ask ask a few questions first of all about how you approach doing that with the desanction? Um, to, to, so to give you the scope of it, um, uh, I originally came up with the idea, and this is a tough one for me to work out, either 2013, 2014. Right. Um, as a, and it was, I think it was the name. <laughs> um, I just like the yeah. name. Um, and so I had the notion of what it involved, um, that, you know, D had been given um, uh, the support of the Queen and act of law to be able to um, fight the supernatural but it then took it then took seven years before i actually got to the point where i found mechanics that would suit the the background or at least you know a set of mechanics that i was comfortable with i actually went through all sorts of iterations of playtesting, all sorts of uh, ideas with cards and dice and tokens i had moments where i even had notions of writing it with a somebody else's system so um and and a prime example would be um i'm good friends with graham botley uh, who is the current writer of maelstrom which is another example of a tudor historical yes i would almost say the original tudor historical uh role-playing game from 84 5 um written by alexander scott um yep and i think um I, in the end, found um, my revelation came actually from my own other game, the Cthulhu Hack, which is based upon David Black's Black Hack, yep. where one of the mechanics, the utility die, uh, which in Black Hack is used for tracking torches and candles and arrows and so forth, just rather than counting numbers. I used it then in Cthulhu Hack to do sanity um, and for investigation. And for some reason, it hit me that it could be then used as a mechanic full stop as a uh, as a way just to determine success and failure because i had it in my mind i wanted to have a game where the people the players involved could just keep pushing forward they would generally be successful but they themselves are below and sort of below average individuals they're, they're capable of doing things but as in in the social structure of the society they are they're criminals okay <laughs> so they have their, their aspirations have a ceiling a very low ceiling and in london very low ceilings rapidly become 
very low basements and then eventually get submerged even further as you sink into the uh, clay. But um, the whole concept was that while they were generally successful mechanically, as individuals, they had reached the end end of the line. Um, and, and so that mechanic was what then tipped me over into, look, I've, I've managed to, I, I then built the system around it and then layered on the background of Dee and Walsingham, which had been, you know, bubbling for, for six, seven years. And that's that's where I got to the, the point where last year I kickstarted it. That that comment about the Cthulhu hack, I played in one of your playtest sessions, I think, at Concrete Cow, and it was for the um, it was the uh, Wendigo uh, or something like that. There was Indeed. cannibalism involved. Um, <laughs> yes, tainted uh, meat. Tainted meat, excellent. Um, one of the things that struck me with playing it was we were rolling the resource dice much more than any other dice. And I thought that it, it and it worked really well, sort of said, looked at it and said, no, the the dice that matter are, are things like the resource dice. Um, and uh, and that was very refreshing. It made the game slightly different um, compared to what I was expecting, which was an OSR clone, which is, I mean, they, they are, uh, which is, which I, I have a lot of love for those. But I, I thought that it, it was very interesting and not an implementation I would expect from also knowing the black hack. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt that sort of because it's uh, is it is it smokes and flashlights or whiskey and whiskey and smokes? I can't remember what you have. Well, it's yeah, smokes and flashlights in, in the in the, the core game. There was an Australian version that had rum and torches i think as an alternative because it was set even further back in time but yeah smokes and flashlights um in in a way um there's in um in trail of cthulhu or call of cthulhu you have the division of purist um stories and those with more pulp and action and in a way i think you know black hack is the pulp side whereas i was looking to use the mechanics of the black hack to tell a purist story so the resources like flashlights smokes and your sanity are driven by that that um usage die the resource die um and the idea is very much that the die determines your character's um slow decline um as an individual away from humanity the more they understand about the cosmic horrors of the universe the less they can connect so it's it's intended to be subtle because flashlights and smokes on the surface seem to be about investigating, but you make the role not to determine the success of the investigation, but to determine whether knowing a little bit more information is going to push your character further down that hole away from humanity into sort of um, understanding too much and becoming useless because when you roll the d4 when you drop down to the lowest die and you roll a one or two you you become incapable of investigating that way anymore either because flashlights have gone which means you can no longer associate things that you see with sort of the common sense world because it's just making no sense to you anymore or with smokes you no longer have that um, empathy with those around you and and can no longer investigate on a social level because you, you can no longer connect with people um, and um, I think uh, that was that was sort of key in making the mechanics thematically 
connect to Lovecraft stories on that level. Um, and, and the one I always love to refer to is his last one and the least, uh, in principle, the least terrific because it was a comedy jab at another writer, The Haunter of the Dark, um, where um, the character, you can see the character in, in the course of their understanding of what's going on, becoming more and more detached from, from the world around them. Um, and that's the, that's kind of the the cause and purpose of using the mechanics as they are. So bringing it back to the desanction, were you doing, is is that uh, very much again part of the desanction or are there some subtle differences in play? So so the you still have that disconnect, but it, it, it is um, again thematically tweaked. So there are two aspects to it in that um, the dissolution the dissolution of the monasteries by king henry the eighth um effectively um broke the barrier that prevents the supernatural from gaining access to our world um and so it started to leak through in effectively in the in in the british isles and then began to leak across europe because at one time the supernatural had its strength in the great wood which covered you know most of europe and would have been populated with elves and fairies and so forth um and so it was kind of like pulling a plug in the uh, at one end and the bath slowly draining away and so the unraveling is kind of that same uh, uh, is is connected to that, and each individual can unravel when they become exposed to to aspects of the supernatural. Um, and when they do unravel, if uh, as with with uh, Cthulhu hack, where you roll a die, you start off with a d8, and you roll the die, and you get if you get a one or two, it will drop down a lower level. But f- when you do roll a one or two, your humours go out of balance, so it is you know genuinely connected to the 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 medicinal world view of the time that you had your you know yellow bile black bile blood and phlegm um and you make a, a role to determine which of your humors has become unbalanced and that affects your personality for a, a, a brief period um so um i'm very aware that you know uh, along with many things that there is a you know 10, whatever, 10, 20, 30 years ago, when, you know, Call of Cthulhu, you have the strong uh, notion of, of uh, insanity and, you know, mental illness as a, as a core aspect of the game. And I understand absolutely that the sensitivity of that. Um, and so I was keen to, to, to move away from it, but at the same time to have the notion of being unbalanced by what you're, you're exposed to and tying it to the Elizabethan worldview of, of, of people and how they, they work in these uh, these humours. Um, and so that that's there. And then you have physical, uh, intellectual and supernatural uh, ability. Um, but they use, the, and they use a, a similar mechanic, but the one or two, it doesn't mean you drop down. It just means that you, um, something, you falter. So basically you achieve something, but it's at a cost. Um, and that cost might be the addition of like a, a, um, a, a consequence, like you, you are left bleeding or you're um, uh, dull-headed, um, or it might be that um, uh, the simplest example I had is you're, you're trying to break into a house, you're trying to break the lock, um, you roll your die, you roll a one or two, instead of the door opening and you get any access to the house, as you're opening the door, there's a gust of wind or whatever, there is a window open and it slams the door against the uh, the inner wall. So you are have access to the house, but you now have the 
the genuine concern that uh, everyone in the house knows that you're there. So what do you do? You, you know, you, the story's still moving, but something has changed for the worse. So those are the mechanics yeah. of the desanction. Yeah, and and they're simple enough that I guess if you you roll them at the table, it's easy for everyone to see whether it's good or bad. And I, I I like small numbers of dice and small dice mechanics uh, where you know it's easy for people around the table to sort of say that's a that's an excellent outcome or or that's a real problem, and then that grabs the attention. Um, so talking about the intent of the desanction. Um, another investigation game, sort of similar to the Cthulhu, ga- Cthulhu hack, is sort of as is that is that a fair description of it? I'm a sort of you know, defend guardians against the supernatural. Um, so uh, it, the implication would potentially be that there is is room for investigation. Um, however. I don't necessarily see desanction as being focused solely on investigation. I don't think in Cthulhu Hack or a Cthulhu game you can go on a dungeon crawl. But I think you could do something like that in the desanction. So, for example, one of the adventures I have published, Dex Libris, um, is about retrieving one of the lost books from Dr. D's library, which, um, following the clues in his brother-in-law's inventory of Mortlake allows you to go to Deptford and, and try and retrieve the book. It's kind of a tiny dungeon crawl. Um, yes, notionally there's an investigation there, but it's not, it's not, it's you, you, you are going through a very small dungeon, uh, and dealing with the, uh, the content there. So, um, and at the same time, there is a, there's a timeline in the uh, the rule book, and I have to refer to my own rule book at this point, but there is a timeline. Um, and there is a notion that over the um, course of um, the existence of the desanction, and just prior to the existence of the desanction, that um, there is the possibility to have uh, periods of time which are related to maybe different sorts of adventure. So I almost see the period after the dissolution of the monasteries, but before the desanction is created, is a period when the unraveling is beginning to take place. So within England, you begin to get spirits and goblins and elves and so forth beginning to appear. You also have all these ruined monasteries, um, which with some very light reading, there are some interesting books about the subterranean world that, you know, there are tunnels connecting towns to monasteries or monasteries to houses and so forth there's a dungeon in that as well Uh, and so there is um there is a period called safety lies in fear where effectively you could have characters who are treasure seekers people who are fighting against um these monstrous fey and so forth um while trying to retrieve the lost treasures of the 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 monasteries which they snuck away to prevent them falling into the hands of the king um uh, so i think desanction has more flexibility to 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 take in other styles of play whether it's exploration or investigation or even for the the right group um and i don't know why the words worlds of darkness are falling into my head but you know political sort of more social slash political shenanigans with factions and families which there exist plenty, you know, you have various bloodlines, you have only, you know, whereas a few centuries earlier, you had tons of 
nobility and dukes and so you only have one duke during this period the, the, the nobility is beginning to decline um but you still have people who very much like um queen elizabeth's uh grandfather uh, henry tudor um you know the desperation to look to your bloodline to to prove your your you know I could be king or queen <laughs> because you know my my uncle's father's mother-in-law's you know uh, was related to you know whatever so I think there is the possibility of of different styles of play without necessarily it being purely an investigation. That that's such a good answer. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I, I and, th- and that's how you create a game because you try and uh, squeeze out as many potential future supplements. <laughs> well, because because there are there are routes to, to there are routes to other paths. So, as I said, safety lies in fear. I have in my head as a supplement, for example. Whereas at the end of the period, so as we mentioned earlier, with D and Walsingham in relation relation to sixteen o two, Walsingham dies in fifteen ninety, mm-hmm. uh, D has fallen out thoroughly out of favor pretty much in the 1580s when he goes on his angel uh, journeys in Europe and returns to be, you know, sort of sidelined as warden of Manchester uh, College. And then ultimately in the 1600s, he's right, he's right out there, you know, he's, he's completely drifted off. But I have the notion that during the 90s, the School of Night is an alternative organization to the desanction uh, because there are other people who believe they have um, the route into the supernatural and can continue the work of the desanction. Whereas after the School of Night uh, is established in the early 1600s, when James takes power, D is still around, um, but Catherine, his, his daughter, takes up the mantle as effectively the head of the desanction, and it continues as a covert organization which continues to battle the supernatural, but no longer has the mandate necessarily of the crown because the crown has now gone full-on anti-magic uh, um so yeah i'm just <laughs> there there are all sorts of ideas and all sorts of possibilities i think um about this uh that, well, that could allow you to have uh adventures um over a, a, a significant period of time there's probably a campaign in here somewhere a very long campaign what you've just said are all the variety and obviously you you have not only have you thought about um this period of history for some time you've obviously got a real passion for it um we, um and that that really comes through um one of the so that's one of the things where i'm sort of saying oh yeah if if i was going to choose between a secondary world and a primary world i would choose this um it has a lot more depth and it has a lot more uh, it's much more tangible to me but hmm. the uh, particularly where you point out the it, it's a lot easier to access some of the things that i think are more interesting such as um declining bloodlines and fighting over titles and the other political aspects of it which i must admit i i know hardly anything about it um compared to say the mystical stuff and the diving into dark tombs and uh, the connection with the supernatural which i i would say i have a much better handle on that and uh, and i think that uh, in some ways having a primary being a part of a primary world it actually helps you write that kind of adventure um i think maybe it 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 will help um 
try, it will help communicate that to the players at the table about the sort of the politics, which might be rendered, I don't know, cartoonish or, or or less than real. If, for example, you you try to do those in the secondary world and you had some, it would end up being maybe a bit like um, you know the film Jabberwocky or something like that, where where all of the historical personages could end up being a pastiche of what they really are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to, so so to tie to your earlier question around setting and yeah. how you, int- you how you could get somebody on board with this or at least you know how how you would involve them in the notion of uh, a historical role playing game i think i and i highlight this in the book don't try don't don't attempt to immerse people don't become the historical pedant allow people to engage as deep as they can and don't don't go any further than that um, if your only exposure to Elizabethan history is watching Elizabeth the movie, then uh, uh, you know, fine. I mean, it's not very precise. <laughs> it's not at all precise. And it ha- again, you have all the characters in play, um, um, and you can get a notion of the politics from there. If you ha- if your only exposure to uh, Tudor history is Blackadder, fine, right? So you know that's not ideal, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, you still have a notion, perhaps, of what it's like. I mean, a more recent and accessible example, and weird as this is, considering the first season was nothing to do with it, A Discovery of Witches um, on Sky um, uh, is set in, Tud- in the Tudor period. Um, and you get... you you If you just let somebody watch that, I'm sure they'll survive the experience, and they will get a notion of what the environment was like. Narrow, you know, narrow streets of of houses which are leaning across you, and you know the factions that would exist in a in in a London that's uh, almost so tiny you could stick it in your pocket, and the the various powers involved, the you know the the Pope and the uh, Emperor Rudolph, and it's all there, and you 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 just say you know okay, you know everybody just watch this series. <laughs> There, right, we're done. That, that wasn't too painful. You haven't had to read a book. Um, but if you do read a book, um, and I've said this <coughs> I've said this with Cthulhu Hack, if you can read a book, it's really valuable um, to, to give you depth and ideas. As a GM, as painful as it might be, um, so, you, know, you do it all the time. You know, if you buy... A, D&D, you will read a supplement for it. If you, you know, RuneQuest, you'll read a supplement for it, whatever. Um, a history book is just another supplement in this in, the, in this case. And that's the, that is the, the nice thing about creating a historical game, is that there are hundreds of years worth of academic <laughs> work yeah. which serve as supplements. Um, and I've um, got hundreds of books just on the Elizabethan period or on the Tudor period or, or on magic during that period and supernatural. And there are plenty of folklore books. So the notion, you know, involving um, specific elements of folklore, creatures of folklore is very easy. And there are lots of books out there because bookshops are full of, full of, you know, um, you know, all, all manner of reference work. And it's not hard to find, unlike the average game supplement, which, let's face it, until you know the last few years, you couldn't walk into a 
whatever at Waterstones and pick up a copy of a of a, of a, a gaming manual unless you were really lucky. But you certainly could have gone in and looked at shelves of of history books uh, and you know at least a bookshelf worth of um, you know Tudor history. So. Yeah. Yeah, it, it means that you, you you only immerse yourself as deep as you want to go, and then play the game from there. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that that's, but it's like I I would um, I would only immerse myself as a GM into an area, and and I'd run games in an area that was in my comfort zone. Hmm. So, and and this is kind of when we get to sort of the Elizabethan earlier medieval periods, I'm I'm less comfortable than say talking about the. Um, the long 18th century and mm-hmm. uh, presenting that so I, I i might do that but even then my interest in that is is um it's very much biased towards certain things and certain styles of interactions in the in in those particular historical periods so i i know i would know more about the high society of jane austen's life in the early 19th than i would know about everything else that was going on there so uh uh, I think the sort of pick your pick your uh, the area that you want to explore, but also stay within the area you're comfortable with, um, is is what I would think because you need to be able to speak with confidence, and uh, it's easier to speak with confidence about something you feel confident about, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think it uh, purely, I would say, it feels like session session zero material. Um, it's kind of you know I uh, you know a GM turning up with the sanction in hand and saying I'd really like to run this game during session zero one of the first discussions after you've established do you want to play a historical game is so what do you know you know and just to you could you could get a baseline for how uh, you know how much people know at that point um, and work out the sort of what what people know what sort of adventures they'd like to pursue and as I said in principle the period. Um, is a is a long one, and there's all sorts of um, you know levers and and gauges and switches that you could throw to actually involve people in all sorts of different environments. So, um, alongside creating your characters, I think in this instance it's you know what's the baseline of knowledge about this period and how how do we want to play it? Um, because I don't think it's too controversial to say in terms of 1602, kind of feels lightweight on history if you didn't include the names. <laughs> Yep. You, you wouldn't necessarily know what period it was you know st- strictly speak okay it's called 1602 but uh, the history is really it's it's color in the background um it could it could have been in another historical period it is communicating as a graphic novel as well though so you have you have the benefit of the the art as well as that um one of the things that it did remind me of, though, sort of going back to this whole whole sort of MCUification of it, uh, it reminded me very much of the graphic novel in the in the um, White Wolf Sorcerer's Crusade, um, sort right. of the major Sorcerer's Crusade, where in that you have two mages fighting a dragon and one has a Gatling gun, and it's the <laughs> most absurd. I think. Um, uh, ridiculous um portrayal of the of the sort of the source material that i would uh, uh it's the most um, absurd portrayal of, of what i was expecting from it i was expecting you know sort of courtly intrigue and uh, different factions and the the metaphysic of magic and i i was not expecting people basically going along with um uh you know fireball spells and blowing up dragons which is kind of seems a wasted opportunity 
Um, so I, I think that that's where I was going with the. You're quite right. It is quite light on historical uh, in on historical content, um, but then it does have a great first act of of establishing the plot where you still get a strong sense of who's yeah. involved. Yeah. Going back to your, say, so you've got hundreds of books on uh, on the Tudor period. Mm-hmm. Which ones would you recommend? Do you have a? I, I can't remember if you've got a bibliography in the back of um, the D sanction. There is. Um, the thing is, it's a tough. It's a tough thing to actually rec- recommend uh, a specific book. Um, from my my point of view, and this this is coming directly from the uh, back of the book. Um, uh, for the period, there there are some decent um, overarching books like the Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England by um, uh, Ian Mortimer, um, and there's also the Elizabethan World View, um, which is uh, a, a much thinner book than the first one, um, which looks at the, the key differences between the perceptions of ourselves and the Elizabethans. Um, and the art uh, for for John Dee himself and the supernatural aspect, the the, the absolute go to is the Ark Conjurer of England, um, John Dee by uh, Parry. Um, if if only because that book alone, just in in passing, has led to more than one adventure forming in my head, um, because the actual fine detail of uh, of what Dee got up to and his his. Uh, uh, researching and uh, he, he he was yeah very much the sort of polymath looking into all manner of um, concepts ideas applying his understanding of science and and magic uh, together um, makes for fascinating stuff but it gives a, a, good, a pretty decent overview of of him um, and in terms of the there's a book called the Elizabethan Secret Services uh, by Hayne. Uh, which deals with um, spies and espionage. Uh, but there's also a couple of good books uh, about Walsingham as well that I didn't include in the bibliography and aren't coming to mind at the moment. Um, but I think if you um, if you just took like the Time Traveller's Guide to give you a, 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 a nice overarching view of the period, it's almost like you know tourist level, um, and then looked at Parry's book on D that would be the sort of two two key books i think to pick up but then as i said i've got hundreds of books and you begin then the 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 deep dive to 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 oblivion of potentially reading too much but i th- i think um it's it's worth dabbling um in 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 books and finding things that interest you amongst as i said if you go to a bookshop and look into the the history area find find one that grabs your attention it's a, a a good reason to go to a bookshop rather than just swimming through one of the online um uh retailers of uh, books um because you can you can find something that takes your fancy i think far more easily <laughs> yeah and it's it's much easier to browse and get a sense of the size of the book and and uh, and and how you're going to interact with it as well um i Going back to one of your other comments about sort of go as far as you want, essentially sort of paraphrasing what, what, you know, immerse yourself as much as you want and picking sort of picking areas of, uh, of study. Once you've, once you've basically got a solid grounding of it, then you can go into different areas. I mean, the one area I am 
slightly more confident talking about that period is the uh, London Maesters of Fence and the uh, the the tension between the Italian rapier masters sort of around you know 1600 and the um, the ancient masters of uh, of English fencing and English backsword and other weapons um, you know for which are detailed in uh, George Silver's Paradoxes of Defence and mm-hmm. then um, Joseph Swetnam's later thing later book um, uh, he he also they're basically trash talks silver he doesn't even mention him by name but it's like they're all pam- they're all pamphleteering and they they sort of one one person wrote one sort of one thing and then uh, you know Swetnam basically wrote a treatise about George Silver saying how he's wrong you know it's it's very much like role playing blogging uh, so yeah. it's a, for, for, you know, <laughs> Uh, I mean that, that that's the thing actually with the books and and this is I suppose this is a useful uh, a useful guide when you do pick a book up look at the index and see how many pages D or Walsingham have there are many because of the the nature and focus it, it there are many history books uh, I've picked up which cover the entire Elizabethan period that mention D once in passing whereas another book will mention him in depth potentially as you know a long-time correspondent and key advisor to the queen um and and then as i said you know uh, same goes for walsingham you you may find that a book kind of includes cecil rather than walsingham or you know as as the person responsible for gathering information for the queen uh, others will you know uh, ramp up walsingham's involvement so again once you do begin to read into the subject you know find your level and when you do pick up a book you can you can quite easily work out whether it's going to be of value to you or not that's great great recommendation so i mean to just to wrap up this section then to summarize and sort of read these back to you it's go to the depth you feel comfortable with go to the subject matter that interests you and uh, and make use of historical resources to the extent that you want to make use of them. Otherwise, and, and most importantly, perhaps, um, get buy-in from your players and talk to your players about exactly what sort of game everyone wants to play. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and to that respect, once you do get it, um, it's, it's very easy, as I've mentioned before, the notion that you could do a dungeon crawl or something, very easy then to take supplements for, from other fantasy games which have a historical nudge you know those you know who say that they have a basis in whatever medieval history or or whatever Mm. which notionally is what D&D kind of is Um, but there are plenty of other games where you could then pick up adventures and notionally run them um, uh, instead of you know going through the the pain and effort of of completely improvising it or come up with your own so there is plenty of source material out there both as historic you know history books but also in terms of the sort of low fantasy uh, supplements and adventures that you could use pretty much straight off the bat what i propose now is you now we've, we've talked about sort of how to set up a that kind of role-playing game some of our misgivings about 1602 and the the value that's in it and also some of the um uh some of the bits where maybe it falls short historically so in the third part of the show we often talk about media uh, and I just uh, make some recommendations uh, for other things that that are um, 
would tie in well with this theme. And I, now I know you've already talked about a couple of um, a couple of things that directly influenced you, or you would recommend people to go to directly. And I'll link those in the show notes. Um, should we talk about historical role playing games first of all? Other examples. You mentioned Maelstrom being well, the original historical, or certainly the original Tudor um, role playing game. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um... I think it, uh, perhaps referring it to as an intentionally historical, um, you know, because obviously uh, you had war gaming, which had been going on for a lot longer and would have uh, covered historical periods, you know, uh, uh, of, of, of a significant uh, array spectrum. Um, but in terms of role playing books, I th- it feels like that was probably one of the, the earliest. Um, and it is, if you read through it, <laughs> It probably falls in line with 1602 in that the actual um, uh, the detail is quite light on the history, um, but it, it is actually supported not by pictures in terms of the colour, but the actual descriptions of characters and occupations and so forth have the colour of the Elizabethan period about them. So if you're going to choose to play a doctor, you begin to understand a little, a little about the fact that doctors weren't very inclined to do medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you know, as in they, they were there to make money and occasionally, you know, overcharge somebody for something uh, suspended in whatever, mercury, um, you know, something that, that they thought would uh, sort the humours out. But um, yeah, I, I think Maelstrom was one of the, uh, is a, a, a key touchstone. Um, and as I said, is, is actually notionally in print as well at the moment through Arian Games. Yeah, I've seen they've done, um, they've also done a Maelstrom Domesday as well which i thought was very interesting yes Uh, yeah i've got my original uh copy which has got something which i found in a second-hand bookshop in ballam and it's got something revolting uh sort of plastered across the back it's it's like i hope it's hope it was like drinking chocolate or something but um (laughs) i remember because tim harford used to live in ballam and and i'd visit him and we go to the bookshop and uh, we talk about whether or not we were going to buy this copy of maelstrom that we couldn't find anywhere else for second hand i'm not sure we could bring ourselves because it had this stain on the back cover but um i I relented because it was well I'm not sure I was going to get a copy elsewhere. Um, I, I I don't know if you've played... Have you played uh, Mage, the Sorcerer's Crusade? I haven't, no. Yeah, no. yeah. I, I was I, aware of it, but I haven't played it. Yeah, I I like the way that um, White Wolf did those historical... Um, the, the, the historical versions. I played in uh, Martin Lloyd's um, Vampire Dark Ages game briefly um, as a guest a couple of times and uh, that was phenomenal i love the tone of it and i was expecting very much the same thing from mage the sorcerer's crusade instead i got this ridiculous cartoony not at all historical sense from it i was lucky though that i played um uh, I, I played in a game that was that was run by a medieval scholar and so uh it, it, and he knew his stuff. He brought it to life, and um, and basically that that's my enduring memory of it is actually playing in his world, which was it made a lot more sense. Um, but uh, I'm not particularly impressed with it. I do like the the way that I kind of like the way it's presented. I like the idea of the different factions, and mostly it's 
it's got the traditions versus the birth of the technocracy. So we do have this, the age of reason coming, coming about. And in this case, their version of the age of reason is the solidification of all reality into a single consensus. So, um, but I think that um, it's not one I would choose to run. It's also a big, chunky book. Uh, it's it, there's mm. too much of it. Um, I honestly think that you know the the best role playing get books I have are the ones that are brief and to the point and give you what you need and don't labour the point or demand a lot of cognitive overhead. You can spend that time, as you say, reading a history book. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think actually in that respect, um, I think GURPS is a valuable source for historical role-playing because as a generic game, um, it's the, the, the chunkiness is in the, book, in the core book. So you've got the mechanics in there. Um, uh, whereas all the supplements for GURPS uh, are keyed in with a sort of laser, laser focus to to a period of time or a uh, book or whatever it is um and i can certainly count while i don't have gurps as a system in my collection i may have done in the deep and distant past i have the likes of you know gurps vikings or gurps middle ages or gurps romans or whatever because somebody has spent the time uh digging digging up the gameable content potentially i mean there, there may still be uh, a bit of stuff to to dig through that um but they are relatively slender volumes, which are intended to present you with a gameable period of time and give you the groundings to be able to run adventures in it. I've got a lot of time for GURPS supplements because of the way that they're presented. They do um, superb sidebars and very clear layouts, really easy to read, excellent presentation and material. Um, the chapters are usually very well delineated as well. Yeah, um, I think that's a really good recommendation. I mean, I've got looking behind me i've got i've got things that i've i've got most of the science fiction the the ones that i have are mostly science fiction aimed so i've got i've got the original um cyberpunk first printing which has got this triangle that says our files were seized by the u.s secret service and uh, because they thought <laughs> yes. it was a hacking manual indeed um, and then i've got um i've got biotech and ultratech um i've got transhuman space which which is actually actually that's the exception to the good layout um that's appalling <laughs> um because i think they they've done this sort of modern thing of having a, a gray textured background and then black text on the front that's the yes. thing that um which is yeah. is just i i don't understand that <laughs> i i was just to say my 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 collection is kind of in, in associated with my notion on on focus in terms of what interests you is is where you should take take the game so i either have a, i have several historical ones i have notionally historical ones in that they're the alternate worlds slash time travel ones which i find are also very useful for just kicking off an idea in your head because someone else somebody clever like ken height will have given lots of th thought to what if this happened and the and those notions are often very useful for getting you uh, into an adventure and then personal interests like gurps prisoner and gurps riverworld where i've i've read a book or seen a series and thought yes have to have that um um but yeah uh, as i said so history and alternate you know time traveling stuff is is is, is a, a valuable source for uh, yeah. for uh, role playing in other systems I've got um, the other one. I've got is GURPS New Sun, which is uh, based on the you know the the book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, mm -hmm. um, 
and it's the same author who actually wrote the the New Sun lexicon or the Earth lexicon, okay. uh, and which is almost essential reading if you want to understand the wider world of Gene Wolfe's book because it's it uses a lot of uncommon terms and archaic or alternative spellings and um, and so you can see that the the same qualities is applied the same quality of um, distilling down that content into the GURPS book making it extremely accessible Uh, Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah two thumbs up for GURPS for me as well definitely I think in relation to what I've just said, though, in terms of time travel and alternate histories, your other route into history are games which aren't rooted in history. Um, So things like, um, we're going really old school here, Lords of Creation, um, which was by Tom Moldavoy, and uh, Luther Arkwright, which is based on the uh, graphic novel, are both effectively time well one of them is dimension traveling somewhat slash time time traveling the other one uh is just time parallel leaping it's not even time time travel um um but both of them have a lot of historical material in them laws of creation has tons of historical characters as it has the most one of the most diverse NPC slash monster books uh in terms of having everyone from serrano de bergerac through to uh, you know, androids from Mars or something, um, or, and goes all over the place. Not necessarily the, the finest game ever, but uh, it it has a pretty diverse set of historical characters all sort of laid out as um, uh, potential NPCs for your adventures. I think it's also, uh, you mentioned Luther Arkwright as well. That's a good mm-hmm. call. Um, partly, and I, I think I'm correct in saying that the second book of the two, Heart of Empire, that that is basically based in a um, it's an alternative Elizabethan setting. I think it's like a vampire Queen Elizabeth, yes, vampire Queen Elizabeth type of thing. Yeah, Vague, vaguely Bathory esque in her ability to take on other people's essence to maintain her youth and and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first one is much more like, uh, I mean, it's obviously ripping off Jerry Cornelius. Well. Uh, a love letter to Jerry Cornelius with its its sort of multiple parallel realities and a central controlling unit um, that uh, that that is at the centre of the multiverse. But um, I mean, just th- thinking about the Luthor Arkwright anyway, that's quite a nice example of um, a as I say a non historical setting that touches upon a number of different points in history where you might want to shine a light on on something that happens in a certain kind of setting like an elizabethan or like a faux victorian steampunk setting where you could go to multiple dimensions is a, a but you were referring probably to the um the role-playing game correct is it yeah. does the role does the game play out like that as well is that the focus uh, yeah the get the game in both its iterations both the because uh, there is a current one based off the sort of D100 type system. Is that by... Mithras? Yeah. Is it for that, Mithras? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, yeah. Um, and then the original one had its own uh, individual system that I can uh, I have a poor memory of and therefore probably didn't grab me. But yeah, the notion is there that you you are capable of travelling between the parallels and uh, are sent on, on missions. And I think, bizarrely enough, I have... I have used the Elizabethan period as well, like that. Not so, not necessarily with Luther Arkwright, but with um, 
oh, the name is now lost on me. It was there for a moment. The time traveling game from um, uh, Pelgrim Press. Um, it might come back to me. But the, uh, the um, I have had one where effectively somebody had smuggled a uh, an atomic bomb into Elizabethan London, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and you had to be able to track it down and whatever and lay it on as much history 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 as it could um but at the same time you had the fun and frolics of uh, avoiding paradoxes by skipping through time whenever you made a mistake um but i think that that notion with luther arkwright and the parallels it, it connects back to, to to what we were talking earlier in terms of um and even through to 1602 the, the notion of taking characters but gently sort of nudging them in slightly different directions and having Absolutely. them yeah, and I think that's it, that's a nice aspect of it that you could have things that are just subtly out of place, even if it was just Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth is a vampire, right? We'll, we'll leave it. <laughs> you know, how does that how does that affect uh, you know the the the, the world around you, um, and 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 nudge the course of history? So, the, so for the TV recommendations, I, 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 we talked about role playing games. The TV recommendations, then, um, you mentioned a couple. You've mentioned one already in the uh, previously, which was the the discovery of witches, which bizarrely enough takes its name from an actual book of the period, which was about witches, uh, oh. but was spelt with an I E at the end of discovery instead of Y. Um, and was a treatise against the existence of witches, I think it was, uh, the notion that there was no supernatural. It was the sort of uh, one of the cases of uh, uh, somebody almost claiming that witches were a conspiracy theory and it was all just made up. Um, but yes, Discovery of Witches. And to be clear, it's the second the second season. Uh, so so the, 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 the actual um, book uh, that it's based on and the series itself is about vampires and werewolves and demons um uh, and um and witches um and uh, so in the second series um and i believe probably the second book i haven't read the books um uh, they travel back to uh, to elizabethan england um and uh, in the if i remember rightly the end of the 1580s or early 1590s so when Edward Kelly is still in Europe, but Diaz returned to Mortlake. Um, and uh, uh, I think, as I said, it's, it's interesting and useful because they did spend some time and money, at least on a couple of streets, to give you that sense of claustrophobia. And they give you kind of a, there's some nice renderings of the city of London, including the cathedral, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral at the time. And, uh, and because this is pre-fire, so this is what, whatever it previously looked like. Um, but yeah, you get a notion of, of what the uh, the environment is like. Um, uh, just to, if you're not inclined to follow the vampire werewolf bit, uh, and you're not into that, then you can probably get by. It's, it, is, it is a reasonably good series. Oh, that's a good recommendation. Um, I'm on the subject of taking historical characters and giving them a, a nudge, although of course this is actually a fandom, not 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 real characters. Um, we just finished the Irregulars, which I really enjoyed very much. That's on Netflix, uh, and that sort of that's kind of a, a reimagining of the Holmes Watson stuff. Mm. Um, but it uh, it um, it doesn't quite invert the characters. It, it makes it makes Holmes and Watson more reprehensible and then and viewed as of a dis, as of a distance. Um, 
and it also has some interesting magical stuff going on. And of course, this is uh, you know uh, three hundred years later, but mm. it's it's. I, I think that um, if we're making recommendations for how people can nudge history and nudge actual characters uh that uh, i'd i'd certainly recommend watching the irregulars anyway because i think it's uh, it's terrific but uh, but the as as long as you switch off your critical mind and ignore the anachronisms of cloning and <laughs> and other things that there's no way could have happened even even yeah because I, I watched it and I did enjoy it, but uh, it, 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 there was a, there were a few anachronisms that were a bit well, a bit that, much. That's true. But <laughs> I, I I I put that down under the heading of it's magic, and, <laughs> and that's sort of because there that there's a lot of magic in it. Um, but I'm thinking of uh, in terms of shaping characters and yeah. twisting events slightly, so you have. Um, you know, it's a historical setting, but there's this anachronistic magic, or there's this anachronistic tech. That is also um, something you could do in addition to shifting the actual uh, what you know about the characters and the situations. Um, having certain characters die before they, the before canonically they die, or or die mm. instead of live, or, or yes. that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think similar to that, um, the Nevers. Um, is 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 of a similar nature, similar period, end of the um, sort of end of the nineteenth century, um, and has a um, now that it occurs to me, there's a kind of an X Men esque, maybe in a way, so an event uh, happens, a, a light in the sky, um, and uh, the, the 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 sky is filled almost with uh, glittering snowflakes, and whoever is touched by these snowflakes is imbued with um, unnatural powers although those powers are quite it almost feels like it it, it feels like very, you know real sort of tiny cantrip sort of powers you know you get a very fine line you're not turned into superman but so you have individuals who acquire abilities some of whom acquire abilities that means that they are either shut away in uh, asylums or or potentially even completely well, potentially ostracized or otherwise, uh, shall we say, destroyed by the, you know, the people who uh, are almost witch-like in their sort of treatment. Um, but that's quite a nice one as well. That that notion of taking um, events and social structure and the, the nature of uh, the, the London um, in that period, which, you know, f from filthy streets to the uh, the ballrooms of the, 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 the Queen, um, that's 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 an interesting take as well well paul um thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast now um i think I should, it's only fair to sort of um give you an opportunity to plug your stuff and i believe you're going to be at uk games expo which you know if uh, which this episode should be out before then um so do you want to tell the listeners more about you know what what they can expect and maybe where they can find you or buy your stuff online um, so yes, at UK Games Expo, my wife Phil uh, is um, founder of All Rolled Up, co-founder. I, I helped a little bit. Uh, so um, and she makes some fanta fantastic dice trays um, and uh, game rolls um, and and face um, and face masks. We, we and face gonna, masks. Yes, we have we have ha we have many of your face masks. 
Yes, so. she she had to turn her her crafting skills um, in another direction when all the all the conventions got um, battened down. So we're going to be there. Um, I'm going to say we're at stand two fifty dash one, but basically we're visible from the, the when you walk in. There's kind of alley cat games, and then I think we're behind it. So we're kind of within vision when you walk into the event. So it will have all the all rolled up stuff, but I will also have um, Cthulhu hack, all the Cthulhu hack books, the desanction core book, and book of days. And at this point, the stretch goals for the Kickstarter had five adventures. I've written three of them, and I've made a Expo special edition, handmade zine esque type um, book, which includes those three adventures. So those will be available as a special edition only at UK Games Expo in specially made um, slim plastic boxes with the desanction logo on the front. Oh, um, wow and uh, but yeah we've got tons of stuff we're also um helping out in, a, in to some measure with uh, companies that aren't there so we've got like um some of the indie games like troika and uh beowulf from handiwork games and things like that so where we've we've got copies of the book we're, we're trying our best to support them uh, and that's what we're doing with that at uk games expo oh um, fantastic and you there was a second part to your question I said, and if and if people aren't, I'll, I'll go on. And if people yes. aren't making it, if <laughs> if they can't and, make it, <laughs> yep, if they can't um, make it, uh, so all rolled up is a good place to start. So you can get physical copies of the 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 books for both uh, Desanction and Cthulhu Hack through allrolledup.co.uk. Um, also, uh, some PDFs are available through that, but also through Drive Through RPG. Um, and if you're if you do find um, uh, books in the wild because Cthulhu Hack is in some game stores as it's some desanction. Um, hopefully, um, certainly Cthulhu Hack is available through Bits and Mortar. Um, so if you buy the physical book, you can get a PDF. Um, and I'm on Twitter and websites. Um, so both twitter.com slash Cthulhu Hack or twitter.com slash desanction are, are places to, to find me hanging out talking about those games. Wonderful. All right. Well, Paul. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great. Fantastic. Hey, thanks to Paul for being such a fantastic guest. And thanks to you, listener, for listening. Now, if you're interested uh, in supporting the show, then there is a Patreon and it's linked in the show notes. Otherwise, if you'd like to like, share, subscribe, that would be appreciated. Let everybody know on Twitter what you think of this podcast. And if you're on iTunes, maybe you could write a five-star review. That would help. Music, as always, is by Chris Brisky. Find out more at chrisbrisky.com. Thanks. Bye.